This morning, I invite you to draw your sword and turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Friend, who is this? May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Leaving the crowd, Jesus said to the disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. While they were sailing on the Sea of Galilee, a furious storm came up that left the disciples petrified. In order for you and I to better understand the story, we need to know a thing or two about the Sea of Galilee. For starters, that is one large lake. At its longest point, it's 13 miles long. At its greatest width, it is eight miles wide. The Sea of Galilee is surrounded by hills and mountains. It's not uncommon for the wind to whip around those mountains, wreaking havoc on any sailing vessel on its waters. It's also important to note that the Sea of Galilee was the location where the Palestinian fishing business boomed in the first century. Many of the disciples of Jesus, before they became followers of Christ, they were professional fishermen. To fish the Sea of Galilee is to fish during a storm. It's not uncommon for storms to come across that body of water. Yet in verse 37, it is Mark who tells us that a furious squall came across the sea. I don't know if you know what a squall is, but apparently it's a severe storm. The original language uses the Greek word Lalips. That's an important thing because Mark could have used a lot of words to describe this storm, but instead he used the specific word Lalips. A Lalips describes a hurricane, hurricane type activity. On this night, a hurricane type storm came across the Sea of Galilee. On this night, a Lalips came across those waters. 
It was so severe that it left the disciples petrified. At some level, I'm surprised about this. At another level, I'm not surprised about it. The fact that Matthew is scared is not all that surprising. He's an accountant for crying out loud. He's already calculated the odds and the odds of their survival are not very good. It's not surprising that Thomas is fearful. After all, he doubted that it was a good idea to even get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. Those guys don't surprise me. But Peter, James, John, those are professional fishermen. You would think that a severe squall, a storm, maybe even a lalips is part and parcel with fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Surely these guys had been through a storm before, but there was something about this one that was so overwhelming. There was something about the howling wind that whipped that boat all over the Sea of Galilee. There was something about the force in which the rain fell that it must have felt like needles puncturing the skin. There was something about the size of the waves that as even those seasoned sailors looked at those waves as they were coming over and nearly swamping the boat, that these guys were scared out of their minds. And even though some of them have been part of a storm before, not any of them are offering any words of comfort or wisdom or instruction. This laylips gripped their heart. They were afraid. Have you ever been in a laylips? On April the 27th, 2011, a record-setting 62 tornadoes ripped and rumbled through this great state of Alabama. On that day, those 62 tornadoes, eight of them, were classified as an EF4. Five of them were given the highest classification, an EF5. After those tornadoes rumbled through Alabama, 240 individuals died. 3,000 were injured. 23,000 homes in the state of Alabama were destroyed. In those days, I was the pastor of First Baptist Church, Pleasant Grove. And one of those big old boys rumbled through our town. One of those large tornadoes cut a mile-wide swath right through the middle of Pleasant Grove. At the end of it, 12 individuals perished. Hundreds were injured. And a 1,000 homes in Pleasant Grove were destroyed or badly damaged. What makes that so severe is that Pleasant Grove is a small community that only boasts 4,000 homes. So one out of every four Homes in Pleasant Grove, completely destroyed or badly damaged. In the church where I pastored, it was one out of three. Devastation was everywhere. I'll never forget that night. Jane Ellen and I did what we were supposed to do. We took the children and went downstairs. We put the bicycle helmets on their heads. I tried to hold on to a couch just waiting and wondering if the roof was going to peel off or cave in. 
We remember the sounds. I look out the window and I can still see the sights. We waited for the storm to pass. We sat there and waited until all the power went out. We knew it was coming from Tuscaloosa. We didn't know what entry point it would come into Pleasant Grove. But one of the last things we heard was that it was coming right to Pleasant Grove. And the television, the power then went out. And we waited. And we wondered, is this going to be the storm that does us in? We wondered what was going to happen. The storm passed, and like everybody else, I went outside. We didn't suffer any damage. We did have a checkbook stub registry from Tuscaloosa in our front yard. There was a top of a washing machine that was impaled in our grass. But other than that, there was nothing. A few streets over, sheer devastation. The church building where I pastored, it sustained some damage. We're able to make the repairs. It was a little more than a million dollars. The church that was located literally right across the street was gone. Not one brick on another. On that night, there were many people that wondered, is this going to do us in? There were many people that wondered, Jesus, where are you in the midst of our layups, in the midst of our storm? And in the aftermath, the survivors, they kept asking those questions. Where was Jesus in all of this? Why did this happen? Where was God in the midst of our layups, in the midst of our severe storm? And for months, I would answer that question. Where was Jesus in this? Is God mad at us? Does the Lord have a vendetta against us? And repeatedly, I could show where Jesus was on that night. We would talk about Marie Holder. You don't know that dear saint, but she was an elderly widow, and she did what she was supposed to do. She went to the very middle of her house, stood in her closet, shut the door, And waited for the storm to pass. And when she opened the door of her inner closet in her house, the next thing she saw was the eastern sky. Because everything around her had been blown away except that little hall closet. Where was Jesus on that night? Oh, he was huddled with James and Mary and Dudley. Once again, you don't know that couple, but that's a couple that's dear to me. And they were holding each other in the corner of their house. And the only wall that was left standing of their house was the wall against which they were hugging and holding each other. That's the only wall. Everything else was literally blown away. Where was God in all of this? He was right there with his people. He was right there with his children. And even Reba Jones, who was thrown from her house and landed in her front ditch, It is Jesus who personally came to escort her to eternity. And he guided her to glory, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. I could go on and on with story after story. But whenever you find yourself in a layups, you always ask a couple of questions. The first one is, is this one going to do me in? 
And the second question is, where is Jesus in all of this? Have you ever been in a Lalips? Oh, maybe your Lalips is not a physical storm like the one that I was in. Maybe your Lalips is far more symbolic. Maybe it's a medical Lalips. For the doctor told you that the cancer has returned and it's inoperable. And it's a tumor that nobody can get to. You need to go home and just put your house in order. Or maybe your Lalips is relational. You had to stand at the casket of your spouse of 57 years and now you've got to go at life all by yourself and you don't know how in the world you're going to make it. Or maybe you have to arrange the funeral for your child. That's not the way it's supposed to go. Children are supposed to bury their parents. Parents aren't supposed to bury their children. Yet you know the pain of that personal Lalips. You know the storm. You know the chaos. You know the raging, howling wind of despair and destruction. You know what it is to have a heart that is ripped from your body as you stand at the casket of your darling son. Oh, maybe your Lalips is not medical. Maybe it's not relational. Maybe it's a monetary Lalips. After giving 17 years to the company, the company lets you go. Not because of corporate downsizing, just because. And you're the main breadwinner of the family. And now you wonder, how are we going to make ends meet? Lalips. It's a storm. It's chaos. It's tragedy. It may be literal. It may be symbolic. But do you know what it is to be in a Lalips? Whenever you find yourself in a layups of any sort, you always ask the question, is this going to do me in? And where is Jesus in all of this? That's what the disciples were asking on that night in our passage. The storm was raging, the wind was howling, the rain was falling, the waves were crashing, and these disciples were scared out of their mind. And they asked the question, where is Jesus? I don't know, came the reply. We'll go find out, barked the instructor. And finally, somebody came back and they said, he's asleep. He's asleep in the midst of the storm. When I need him the most, he's asleep. Yeah, he's asleep in the stern of the boat, which means the back of the boat. Mark says that he was asleep on a cushion. The word cushion can also be translated as pillow. If you're not careful, that detail will just glide right by. But the pillow provides purpose. See, Jesus didn't just inadvertently go to sleep. He went to sleep on purpose. Several years ago, Jane Ellen and I took a trip that required a long flight. Somewhere in flight, the attendant came and said, Sir, would you like a pillow? What's she asking? Sir, do you plan on going to sleep? Because if you plan on going to sleep, I can provide you with a pillow. That will make it much more comfortable for you. Would you like a pillow? See, the the pillow provides purpose. Jesus was asleep on a cushion. He didn't just inadvertently fall asleep. No, he was exhausted. He intentionally went to sleep as they were sailing from one point of the Sea of Galilee to the other point of the Sea of Galilee. And why is Jesus so tired, you ask? Because all day long, Jesus has been preaching. And I know that Jesus is completely God. At the same time, he's completely human. And any man who preaches all day long, at the end of that day, he is exhausted. 
And so in, in, in this moment in our story, Jesus is exhausted. He is tired. So he's asleep in the back of the boat on a cushion. What do you do with a sleeping Jesus? What do you do when you need Jesus and you discover that he's asleep in the back of the boat? What do you do with a sleeping Jesus? I bet I'd do what you would do. I bet you would do what the disciples did. They woke him up. That's what you do with a sleeping Jesus. You wake him up. Jesus, we need you right now. And these guys interrogate Jesus and they indict him. Jesus, don't you care that we're going to drown? Do you hear the indictment in their question? It's not Jesus, I really hope you're getting some good sleep. Or Jesus, I hope you're resting well. No, it's Jesus, don't you care? They're questioning the compassion of Christ. It's really not a question of do you care. It's an indictment that you don't care. Jesus, you don't care that we are going to drown. Once again, it's not a question of we could drown, we might drown. No, they've already settled it in their mind. We are going down in this boat. We are certainly going to drown. And Jesus, you don't even care. One of the questions when you're in a layups, the question is, is this going to do me in and where is Jesus? They've already concluded that this will do them in and they've already concluded that Jesus doesn't care. He's asleep in the back of the boat. Jesus, don't you care that we're gonna drown? And Jesus gets up and I'm sure that he probably just stares for a second at the disciples and then he merely speaks two words. I know in English it's more, but in Greek it's just two words. Two commands. Looking skyward, he says, quiet, still. And immediately, the wind and the waves obeyed him. The creator stood, and all he had to say was quiet, still. (laughs) And everything got calm. The wind stopped blowing. The rain stopped falling. The waves stopped crashing and everything was calm. And then looking at the disciples, he asked a couple of questions. Why are you so afraid? Well, Jesus, if you have to know, the reason we're afraid is because, well, you were asleep, we're in a storm, this is the layups, and we think we're going down. And then Jesus asked another question. Do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? Guys, we've been together a long time. You've seen a lot, you've heard a lot. You've seen me heal, you've seen me heal the paralytic, you've seen me heal a leper, you've heard the teaching, you have heard and you have seen. Do you still have no faith? Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is taking God at his word. And what Jesus is saying to the disciples is even though you've seen all of this and even though you've heard me preach all day long, you still are not taking me at my word. You're still not seeing me for who I am. You're still not believing me to be who I'm declaring myself to be and proving myself to be. Do you still have no faith? Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is taking Jesus at his word. All day long, The disciples had heard Jesus preach. 
All you got to do is go back just a few verses and hear some of the preaching and teaching of Jesus. Uh, Go to a place like Mark chapter 4, verse 26, just a few verses earlier. And Jesus had said to that large crowd, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who went out to scatter seed. And that crop grew. Whether the farmer was awake or asleep, during the day or at night, the seed produced a crop. And at the harvest, when everything was ripe, harvesters brought in the crop into the barn. Now, that's a parable. It's a short sermon. It's a brief story. And what's it about? He's saying this this kingdom of God This kingdom will grow whether you are awake or asleep. Stop and think about the life of a farmer. Now, a farmer works from can to can, right? A farmer works from sunup to sundown. But at the end of the day, the farmer eventually goes to bed and still that crop grows even while the farmer sleeps. And Jesus says, so ultimately, the one who brings the harvest, the one who brings the growth and brings the grain is the God of the universe. And Jesus is saying, likewise, in the kingdom of God, This thing's going to grow, not because of you, but because the king of the kingdom is here. Because I am here, Jesus is implying. Because I am here, Jesus says, the king of the kingdom has arrived and the kingdom will grow. For how many of us could give testimony? that There have been times in our lives when we've been awake to the things of God. And there have been times in our life when we've been asleep to the things of God. There are times when we are awake and alert. There are other times when we are asleep. And even while we sleep, God's kingdom still advances. And even while we don't have a regard for God, God still has a regard for us. And his kingdom is still expanding. Why? Because the growth of the kingdom is not dependent on you and me. The growth of the kingdom is dependent on the king of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus went on in verse 31. He said, Listen, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of seed. It's insignificant. But yet when it's planted, it becomes the largest plant in the garden. Its large branches give shelter and shade to many birds that come and find perch in it. What's he talking about? Once again, he's saying, listen, the kingdom of God is going to grow. It's going to expand. It's going to start out pretty small. This kingdom of God starts with the king himself coming to earth in a Bethlehem barn. He was raised in obscurity and, and raised in abject poverty. And what did they do to that mustard seed king? They buried him in the ground. And what happened? He didn't stay in the ground. He was raised from the dead. And Jesus has built a kingdom. He's built a tree that is so expansive that today, two billion, billion with a B, two billion people claim safety and security in Christ. And you and I both know that there are some wacky birds in the church today, right? And yet we, all of us, we, we find that shelter, we find that shade in Christ. What is he saying? He's saying the kingdom of God is gonna explode in growth and it's based all upon the king of the kingdom being here. When Jesus says to the disciples, do you still have no faith? What he's saying is, guys, when I was preaching all day long, you were saying amen. You were saying I'm with him. Yeah, 
I'm his follower. He chose me. He picked me. He identified me and said, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And so I'm going to go with him. I'm with him. I, I believe in him. He is the king of the kingdom. He's the master. He is the one who is the savior of the universe. I'm with him. Amen. Preach it, Jesus. <laughs> and all day long, Peter, James, and John chest got puffed up all day long. Thomas and Bartholomew said, yes, I'm with him. Count me in. He is the king of the kingdom. And the moment the storm struck, they questioned everything they had affirmed earlier that day. Why? Because they believed that the storm was stronger than their savior. They believed that the Lalips was larger than their Lord. And in that moment, they cried out in fear and doubt and disbelief. They cried out and they said, don't you care that we are going to drown? We're going down in this boat. Even though hours earlier, they had said, Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And now that the storm strikes and the layups comes, they say, this is going to do us in. And Jesus, who's the king, he doesn't even care. My friend, does that sound like you at all? Because there are times when I live out this story. We will say that Jesus makes a way out of no way. We will say that he gives hope to the hopeless and help to the helpless. We will say that he is able to do immeasurably more we can ever ask, think, or imagine. And we say, amen. That's right. That's our Jesus. He can fix any problem. There's nothing too big for Christ until the layups strikes your heart. Oh, we say that God will make a way out of no way until we experience the chaos of no way and we say there's no way we're gonna get out of this way. There are times that we will say amen to the fact that Jesus can heal until we're the one with cancer and we don't say amen, we say oh my. There are moments when we will say in faith that he is the king of the kingdom, that he has all authority and that he can do anything. And then, when it's our marriage that's falling apart, when it's our child that's sick, when we're the ones who get the unemployment slip, we don't say that Jesus has authority, we say Jesus is absent. Is there anybody else who's an honest disciple in here besides me? Is there anybody else who says, you know what, there are times when we say, yes, Jesus, you have healed that person, but my cancer is worse than theirs. Yes, Jesus, you've healed that marriage, but my marriage is worse than that. Yes, Jesus, you've helped in that relationship, but this current relationship is more deteriorated than ever. And yes, Jesus, you've made a way out of no way for them, but I don't know about this scenario because this one's too big. And yes, Jesus, you've helped me in the past, but this layups is bigger than I've ever experienced before. Jesus, don't you care that this is gonna do me in? And Jesus says to us what he says to the disciples, do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? The, I'm larger than your layups, Jesus says. I, I'm, I'm stronger than your storm, Jesus is saying. I'm mightier than your mess, Jesus is proclaiming. Do you still have no faith? Do you still not take me at my word, at who I say I am, who I've proven myself to be? Where is your faith? Do you still have no faith? Jesus says to the disciples. You've heard this sermon preached numerous times. And most individuals 
use this punchline. If you have enough faith, Jesus will calm all the storms of your life. And while that promise sounds good, that promise is not given in this passage. This passage is not given to us to give us the promise that Jesus will calm all the storms of our lives. Because some of you know the reality that you trust Jesus and the storm still rages. Think about the original audience. These are are Gentile believers and they're being thrown to the lion's den and they're being torched and speared and their children being kidnapped and they're coming to this story and they're saying, Mark, you better give us something more than all we gotta do is believe and our storms will be subsided because we believe and we trust and our children are still getting kidnapped and our friends are still going to the Colosseum. You've gotta give us more than that because some of you know the reality. You know what it is to trust Jesus And you know what it is for the storm to still rage. You know what it is to lose everything in the Lalems. You know what it is to lose all your possessions in the storm. You know what it is to have faith in Jesus and still be unemployed. You know what it is to have faith in Jesus and your cancer patient husband still dies. You know what it is to have faith in Jesus and still have to stand at the casket of your lovely daughter or your son. And you understand that even though you trust in Jesus, that doesn't mean that all the storms of life will subside. So what's the promise of the passage? If it's not that, preacher, what is it? I'm glad you asked. Because I think a more accurate understanding of this story goes something like this. That from this story, Jesus promises that he will never abandon and always accompany his disciples through the storm. That's what this story promises. That Jesus will never abandon and he will always accompany his disciples through the storm. Where was Jesus? He never bailed out of the boat, right? Where was Jesus? He was in the back of the boat. What do you do with a sleeping Jesus? I praise the Lord that I got a sleeping Jesus. I'd rather have a sleeping Jesus than no Jesus at all. I'm just glad to be in the same boat as Jesus. It's not that Jesus is in my boat. I'm in his boat. He's the captain of the seas. And so he's the one who calls the shots and he just lets me get into the boat. If he wants to sleep, that's all right. I'd rather have a sleeping Jesus than no Jesus. It's okay for Jesus to be asleep. It's all right because I'm in the same boat as him. And if he's in the same boat, then he is the king of the kingdom and that boat is not going down. So from this story, Jesus promises that he will never abandon. He'll always accompany his disciples through the storm. He accompanies with peace and with power. For me to say he accompanies with peace, I'm reminded of the words of Paul in the Philippian correspondence. Do not be anxious about anything, but through prayer and supplication, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus accompanies us with his peace and with his power. Once again, I'm reminded of what Paul will write to the Romans. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. For I am convinced that neither height nor depth, 
neither angels nor demons, neither death nor life, nor any power, nor present or the future, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have a preaching friend in Michigan, and when he comes to this passage, he makes this statement. When you come to a laylips in your life, just take a nap. When you have a laylips, just take a nap. He uses nap as an acrostic for never anxious presence. Just take upon yourself a never anxious presence because the peace of God which transcends all understanding will abide within you. And the power of God that cannot separate us from anything of the Lord will accompany you. So you just take a nap. When the storm is raging, when the, when the winds are howling, when the waves are crashing, whether it's physical or symbolic, when you're in the midst of chaos and destruction and despair, all you got to do is take a nap, have a never anxious presence. Why? Because you're in the same boat as the king of the kingdom. And it's going to be all right. Regardless of what happens, it's going to be all right. So just take a nap. A never anxious presence. Horatio Spafford was a wealthy lawyer living in Chicago in the 19th century. He and his wife Anna accumulated their great wealth really from real estate. But the Chicago fire of 1871 literally destroyed much, if not most, of their possessions. Took them several years to rebound and recoup. In the fall of 1873, Horatio wanted to take his wife and four daughters to vacation in England. It got time for them to board the boat and Horatio was detained because of work. Something that he just had to do. Keep in mind, he's still trying to make ends meet. He said to his wife, Anna, you and the girls go ahead. I'll catch the next ship. I'll see you in just a few days in England. On November the 22nd, 1873, the sailing vessel that was carrying Anna Spafford and their four daughters was struck by another ship. They were close enough to England that the survivors were taken to England. And Anna Spafford sent a two-word telegram to her husband, Horatio. And the two-word telegram just simply read, Saved Alone. Horatio was overcome by grief. He boarded the next boat, set sail for England told the captain who he was and what he was doing. The captain knew well about that tragedy. And when they got to the spot where the tragedy had taken place, the word came from the captain's quarters. Mr. Spafford, we're over the waters where your four daughters are entombed beneath. Horatio went to the edge of the boat and he stared into the deep blue sea. 
There was a moment of silence. Horatio returned to his sleeping quarters. He sat down and he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. How can a man named Horatio Spafford write words like that? I'll tell you how he can write words like that. That even though he's standing over the tomb of his four precious daughters, he knows that the Lord is larger than his laylops. That the Lord is greater than his storm. That Jesus can bring a miracle out of his mess and because of that he can say it is well it is well it is well with my soul in our story the disciples simply ask the question who is this even the wind and the waves obey him who is this This is not a question that Jesus answered. I'm confident it's a question that he heard, but he did not answer it. Almost as if he is saying, you've got to answer it. This is a question that not even Mark answers for his first century audience. He leaves it open-ended, inviting his audience then and now to enter into the story and answer the question, who is this? Look at the evidence. Look at the proof. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? It's a question that you've got to answer. Friend, who is this? It is Peter who will say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Who is this? The Roman centurion will say, surely this man was a son of God. Who is this? This is who John the Baptist will declare. You're the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who is this? John, the beloved disciple, will write and say, you are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Who is this? It's a question that is posed to all of humanity. Who is this? It's a question that you must ask and answer. Who is this? I came this morning just to tell you that this is the Lord of my laylops. I came to tell you that this is the one who's the savior of my storm. I came to tell you that this is the one who brings a miracle out of my mess. I came to tell you that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one worthy of my worship and praise. He is the captain of my boat. He is the one that's called me to set sail with him. He is the one that's in charge of my living. He is the one that has orchestrated my dying. He is the one who organizes my steps. This is my Jesus. And regardless of whether it's April 27th, 2011, or whether it's November the 4th of 2018, I came this morning to tell you that he is Lord of my laylips. Who is this? 
whoever he is. He must be the same when the sun is shining and when the storm is raging. Whoever he is, he must be one who can accompany you through the most fiercest storms of life. He's not just a fair-weathered Savior. He is the Lord of the Lalips, the Savior of the storm. Friend, who is this? Heavenly Father, help us to be a people of faith, a people that take you at your word. Oh, Father, we pray that you will have your way in this invitation. There may be somebody here who does not know you as Savior. They may be questioning you and your ability and your authority. There's some people here and they know what it is to live in the midst of the raging storm. They can still feel the howling wind and the piercing rain and the overwhelming waves. That storm that is relational or monetary or health driven. Oh, Father, they know what it is to wonder if this is going to do us in. And where is Jesus in all of this? And Lord Jesus, will you please, as you always have, show yourself strong and mighty. In Jesus' name, amen.